You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. On the Heart of Giving podcast, we're going to bring you a series of episodes, starting with this one, that feature powerful Black women who are giving back. We thought we would do this to emphasize the important role that Black women play in philanthropy today and in helping us think about how we can be more impactful citizens and leaders in our organizations. You'll see that the people we feature are going to be from various professions and walks of life. And they all have a really fascinating story to tell about what engaged them in giving back and how they're going about doing it today. In this episode, we feature Asahi Pompey, who is a partner, member of the management committee, and head of the Goldman Sachs Foundation. We also have Judy Belk, who is the CEO of the California Wellness Foundation. Dr. Sharice Hamblin, who is the founder of Patients Are Waiting, who is also an OBGYN. And by the way, each of our guests have been previous guests on the podcast. And I want to refer you to the podcast episode in the episode link so that you can go right to that particular podcast and hear the full interview that we've had with each of these wonderful people. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Asahi Pompey, head of the Goldman Sachs Foundation and also a partner in the firm and member of its management committee. So I want to talk a little bit more about you. Oh, <laughs> You started this interview off by saying, Art, if you would have told me that I would have ended up in this role when I started at Goldman Sachs, I wouldn't have believed it. Well, I want to go beyond that. I want to go past that. Let's get back before that. Asahi was a young girl at some point trying to decide what she wanted to do in her life. And what was it about your upbringing and your rearing, uh, the, the relationships that you were able to establish early in your life? that sort of set you on this path. What were some of those unique moments? And I asked this question because, you know, people are going to look at you and say, oh, of course, she was always, you know, Asahi Pompey, the partner at Goldman Sachs, right? She was, 
she just kind of dropped in out of the sky <laughs> into this role. But we know that's not the case. We know that you had struggle. We know that there were moments when you probably doubted yourself. But here you are. What, what went on in your early life that got you here? What hurdles did you see yourself overcoming that, that sort of led you to this great position that you now hold, where you're not only able to help your firm, but you're able to help people around the globe? I think I'm probably the most unlikely Goldman Sachs partner. I, my family of seven, and I have four siblings, uh, and my parents immigrated from Guyana to Brooklyn. We went to the Vanderveer Housing Projects on the corner of, for those New Yorkers, uh, Foster and Nostrand Avenue, where my aunt lived. And we moved in with my aunt who had a son, she and her husband, there were three of them, and the seven of us moved in. So there were 10 of us in this one bedroom, one bath apartment in the housing projects. And we lived right next to the incinerator because that was the, um, that apartment cost less because it was right next to the incinerator apartment 4F. And we came in October. By November, my parents had found jobs. My mom was helping my aunt who was working as a homemade and my mom did the weekends and my aunt was taking care of um, an elderly woman during the week. And so she did that on the weekends. And my dad started working at Chuck Full of Nuts. And this was a man who was a teacher in Guyana. And he was in the vats of coffee at Chuck Full of Nuts, packing bags uh, and shoveling coffee into, into bags. I remember he would come home smelling of coffee. And he had his back brace after a while that he had this big leather belt that daddy always had around his waist in the years, early years that he worked at Chuck Full of Nuts. And we were always, I grew up in a family of educators. So lots of my aunts are school principals or teachers. My dad, as I mentioned, was a teacher. And so education was always the importance of it and was always something that was stressed. And also the, the fact that my parents had dreams for me that were far bigger than I had dreams for, for myself. And they were preparing their kids to go to rooms they likely thought they would never get to, but you, my child, will get to those rooms. To go to places they thought, I'm probably not going to get to go there, but I'm going to try to build you that you will get to go to those places. And they didn't shield us from the struggle, right? Remember, I'd go to Pathmark and, you know, there was that little metal thing that you would put when you were to separate your things from another person's things at the grocery store. And my mother would put it between the essentials and the nice to have. And you'd put your bubblicious and hope your bubblicious gum would be on the on the side. But when that line was was crossed, we didn't have any more money to pay for it. And you knew that, you know, not occasionally, more times than not, she put your your Mars bar, your Snickers bar over the line. But you knew and she would tabulate exactly how much it was and and all of those items you'd put back and we'd run around trying to put them back on the shelves because the money was up. And so there was a keen understanding around individual responsibility and the importance of education and that you were going to have to find your way and you're going to have to make your way and make your path and then contribute to the family. I have two younger brothers that are a decade and uh, 10 and 11 years younger. And so that was, um, that was life. And I saw how late they would work and my dad worked the night shift. And so he'd, you know, come home at the seven to 11 shift. And so I think seeing their path and seeing their struggle and their joy, like it was a lot of joy in the evenings, lots of laughter and lots of other things as well. And so I think that has profoundly impacted me. Well, you know, there are lots of people who have backgrounds like that, that got nowhere close to where you are. Um, many of them end up in really bad situations but somehow you rose out of it. Was there a particular 
thing, event, or memory that you have that really triggered you to go to another level? You said, I, I know that I'm going to do something really important. I remember in um, when I went to middle school, the at that time, the grades were like one through like 12, you know, seven, one, seven, two, seven, three. And I think when I started middle school, I was in seven, five, I think it was. And it was like September by October. I had a teacher, Mr. Balsam, who had watched me, I guess, over the six weeks of school. And he said, in front of the entire class, I'd answered a question and he said, you don't belong in this class. And I thought initially I'd done something wrong. He said, see me after class. And I came to see him after class. And he said, on Monday, you're going to be in 7-1. And I didn't even know what 7-1 was because I don't think I was really conscious of the fact that this was. But he literally plucked me out of 7-5 or 6, put me in 7-1. And our, what was a black school became a white school. Different, different school, different experience entirely and changed my middle school path, which then changed my high school path. So I would have to give a big shout out to New York City school teachers. While I, I highlight that example, I think about all the other kids in seven, five, six, seven, and eight, right? Because the, the thing that I don't want is I don't actually like being the first, the only, an exception, because I know the richness and the talent of people from my background in this country who don't get an opportunity, who are the plant trying to grow through the cracks and who aren't plucked and whose lives are dramatically different. And so my aim is to create less exceptions and to allow more people to flourish and to grow. But if I were to go back, I would say there were really significant teachers I can point to along the way who saw something in me and didn't just let it lie languish took the time, took the extra effort to say, I'm going to do something. I see, I see a spark. Judy Belk, CEO of the California Wellness Foundation. Speaking of hometowns, one of the first questions I like to ask my guests is how they got started in this life of service. Um, for you, it must have been something that triggered this interest in you from your days as a young girl here in Alexandria. Tell me, tell me about that. Tell our guests a little bit about the, the young Judy Belk. Oh, the young Judy Belk. Uh, well, really, uh, by, my life really started, I always say, about 10 miles from the White House. Uh, I grew up at a time in this country where, again, uh, not dissimilar to what's happening now, that this country was tackling a race. Uh, so I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, born in a segregated hospital in Alexandria, Virginia, before it was a tourist destination. And my life in terms of what I had access to, what I didn't have access to, was determined a lot by the color of my skin. I lived for, you know, the first 10 years of my life in a small, supportive African-American neighborhood in Alexandria, uh, but without access to water or indoor plumbing. It's, it's pretty unbelievable when you think, because I'm old, but I'm not that old. I would say that the first significant impact on me 
that's reference to my journey is getting access to public education. When I started school, the Brown decision was the law of the land, but the state of Virginia always was a tough nut to crack on institutional racism, just fought it. And the city of Alexandria, that's part of their their history. And so my my mother, very courageous, at the age of 25, joined a group of other African-American parents raising their hands, saying that they would be test case for the Brown decision. And this is where philanthropy came in. Of course, the NAACP, the Legal Defense Fund, there were just amazing African-American attorneys. But the case was funded by the Jewish philanthropic community in Alexandria. They made it happen. As a result of that, we won the case. I had access to school because when I started out, I was going to a a separate but very unequal school. That decision really changed my life. But it would take another 10 years before the city would really integrate its schools. And in fact, it was so significant that Hollywood made a movie about it. Remember the Titans of right. Denzel Washington. That was about that was about T.C. Williams, um, the school that I was in. So that was one. I guess the other one, which is also a, a really important lesson for me about the impact of philanthropy. A generous philanthropist in Alexandria decided that every child should have access to the arts. And so she provided funding to a community-based organization that I was a part of to provide us the opportunity to go over to the National Theater to see professional arts. And so I remember seeing the opera Carmen for the first time. It was the first time I saw a live professional arts production. I was mesmerized. And as a result of that, I have been a lover of the arts ever since. That philanthropist, I, I wish I knew who she was so I could you know, reach out to her family to, to thank her for giving uh, me that opportunity. And then the final game changer for me was I was really interested in the arts and communication and my drama teacher encouraged me to apply to some strange sounding school called Northwestern. And I almost didn't apply because I thought it was in Seattle. It's really outside of Chicago. I applied. I got in. I was the, you know, the first, my, my parents did not go to college. And the idea that they were going to let me go to some strange school uh, they had never heard of. Uh, that was a big uh, discussion in my family. But when they saw the financial package, the letter which had a big zero by parental contribution, my father said, okay, yeah, I guess you can go. And this was, at least in my life, I didn't have the opportunity to visit colleges beforehand. So my parents drove me to, to Northwestern 
dropped me off. And that too changed my life because of the group, philanthropists, donors to Northwestern really felt that it was important to provide philanthropic support to someone like me. So lots of stories of where philanthropy giving has really made a huge, huge impact. And for all of those experiences, I certainly had no idea that there was even a job or an opportunity to make a living in philanthropy. But what I did get from that experience was a belief that collective action, courage by my mother, support and resources can make a difference in terms of social justice and generosity and giving and service uh, can make an impact in the lives of so many, certainly made an impact in the life of a young Black girl growing up in the segregated Alexandria. That's amazing. Judy, I had no idea that your life intersected with that groundbreaking case, Brown versus the Board of Education. And to say that your life has changed in a dramatic way since you grew up would be an understatement. Here you are in Hollywood, (laughs) having grown up in Alexandria without running water. I, I just find that to be so much the American tale. Yeah, and you know, Art, the other lesson that I learned from that, I didn't know it at the time, but place matters. I mentioned to you, I mean, you you know the Washington, D.C. area. So literally, I, I grew up 10 miles from the White House, but my life was determined by the segregated policies 100 miles south in Richmond, Virginia. And in Alexandria and Virginia was one of the the holdouts uh, in this country's journey around racial justice. I mean, there were parts of Virginia who literally closed their public schools rather than provide access to African-American students. Now, they developed their own parallel schools for whites. I remember my parents debating whether or not they should uh, pay the poll tax. I mean, Virginia was a real tough cookie around racial justice uh, and racial injustice. And it was always like we were peering over the fence because we had family members who lived in the district in Washington, D.C., and their lives were were very different for no other reason than place. Wow. Dr. Sharice Hamblin, founder of Patients Are Waiting. Well, Sharice, first of all, tell me how it was that you got this interest in medicine as a career. I guess it's a funny story. I hated going to the doctor as a child. It was actually a very challenging endeavor for my parents to take me to the pediatrician. And they would bribe me and try to convince me that it would be okay. And I just knew that she was going to stab me with something and I would die. So I always wanted to be a teacher and I hated going to the doctor for any reason. I hated the sight of blood. And in ninth grade, I took biology Every day, my family would eat dinner together. And at the dinner table, my father would ask, well, what did you learn in school today? 
my report often had to do with my biology class and to my explanations of what was happening in the body and what we learned about, his response was, okay, you like biology? Well, then you can be a doctor. I believed him because I'm a daddy's girl and I believe what my father says. And uh, I went on through high school with that premise that I would become a doctor. And a part of my decision of where I went to school or college had to do with that. It's just well, where could I go that I was going to be able to become a doctor? That's really interesting, especially the part about not wanting to get needles. I can remember when my daughter was very young, I got a call from my wife saying that I got your daughter on the bus and she immediately started crying. And I said, why did she start crying? She said, because she knew from the bus we were taking, she's about three years old at the time. She knew from the bus we got on that she was going to the doctor to get a needle. <laughs> so that's, I guess that's real among young people. But it's really fascinating to me that you took this interest in biology. So you must have just had an aptitude for it. Is that what you would say was the driving factor? You just saw something in it that just said, wow, this is what I want to do. Well, I honestly, I did well in school growing up. I was a smart kid and I had parents who were very involved and we were active. My parents said, look, it's your job to be a student. And so you have to go to school and you have to do your homework and you have to do your best. And so whatever things were available, that was part of what I did. Science in, you know, in elementary school is just one of your classes. So I wasn't a part of any kind of like science program or anything like that. I did go to a magnet high school that was Bronx High School of Science. And that school, we were preparing for regents exams. And so a lot of my science exposure really started there as far as science exposure beyond what is the normal coursework for an elementary school learner. And so biology class was interesting. And I just found learning about the body and how it works to be very fascinating. And I've always had a curiosity about how things worked. And so that was part of it. So we took biology, chemistry, physics, and then many AP courses were offered in my high school. And so I took three AP classes. APs are advanced placement. So in New York, you have this regents curriculum and not every high school uses it, but you have to take a standardized test at the end of the year to get your regents credit for doing that course. So I, I think that when I reflect back now on the educational steps, having a high level of academic rigor in high school set me up for success in college. It's not enough to just do the courses. It's to push yourself, take the challenges that are available. And each time that I learned something or took a class, I wish I knew at that time that that could be the last time I got to learn that thing. Like now, as I talk to young learners, I reflect and tell them the things that I wish I knew way back when. So for example, you know, learning in global studies, I never did, you know, model UN or something like that. And I didn't have an appreciation that unless I took those courses in college, I wouldn't have that understanding again. Sharice, I'm asking these questions about your background because it would seem that as an African-American young woman and before as a young girl, you are somewhat of an anomaly in the medical profession. Obviously, that's something that you've seen. What was it like growing up being either the only one or one of a few pursuing a pathway toward medicine? 
So it's interesting that you say that and that framing. And I, I think so much of the time that is the narrative that we're told this week. African-American women or black women make up about 2% of the medical profession. I take that statistic not as a, I'm one of the chosen few, but it, to me, that is a conviction of the medical community for there to only be 2%. I think that for me, one of the factors that was different is the fact that I was always told that I could do it, that at home, most of the time at school and in my community, I was always encouraged. There were times that I was the only Black student in my class or the only Black female student in my class. But again, I had a very nurturing home and church environment. And so it never felt like an insurmountable experience. But there were definitely times you look around and you're like, wait, where are the rest of the Black people? So I am really interested in knowing a bit more about not only how you became a doctor, but what now drives you to chart a pathway for other young people who might have an interest in medicine? I'm very driven by the idea and the notion, like I know that I'm special. I'm special to my husband. I'm special to my family. And I was special to you know my, my parents. But I don't think that I'm so special that others can't do it. I meet wonderful aspiring physicians every day. And I know that what helped propel me was people around me saying, I believe in you. Yes, you can. Of course you can. And some stubborn resistance to the voices that said, are you sure that you want to do that? Don't you want to become a nurse? Are you sure that medicine is right for you? It takes a long time to get there. And so I'm really thankful for the values that I had that were basically like, look, I have my youth and I could be in school and keep going or I can go to work sooner. Like, I'm not in a rush to go to work. <laughs> Let me go ahead and stay in school and keep doing what I set out to do. And so what drives me to help other students is really that, you know, that there are so many people who didn't persistent medicine, who would be great physicians and who would be great additions to the medical profession. And it makes me upset and it makes me sad to have fewer amazing colleagues or fewer physicians or treating people who are, they're someone's daughter, someone's aunt, and they need care that is compassionate, that is passionate about them the same way that they feel about themselves. So if you're treating a patient that you can see yourself in, you treat that patient differently. You spend more time with them. You joke around more with them. They share more with you. And I am really blessed to be able to have those types of patient interactions every day. And I want more patients to receive that kind of care and more doctors to have that same kind of experience. So it will be safe to say that your interest in starting an organization to deal with this is really more focused on patients than it is physicians. Absolutely. Art, you know, I, tr I tried not to start an organization. <laughs> Over the years in my attending physician life, I've tried to work within other organizations 
to affect change in the face of medicine, in the landscape, and in the the path of minority pre-med students. And over time, it just became really clear that the work of increasing diversity in medicine is going to take multiple efforts from multiple vantage points. The work that I can do as a mentor is really focused, but there is work that can be accomplished beyond the number of students that I can personally reach and say that patients are waiting for you. You do not have the luxury of self-doubt. It's not an option for you to listen to that voice that says, I'm not sure you can, or that dissuades you from the end goal because people are dying. We see it in COVID. We can see the disparate outcomes in different states, whether it's with access to testing, whether it is with admission to the hospital once a patient is presenting to the emergency room with shortness of breath. We see it in transplant. We see it in every single aspect of medicine, disparities in care. And at the root of health disparities is not race, it is racism. And if we're going to dismantle systemic racism, systems have to change. I can play a small part in that. And the part where I try to apply pressure through the work of Patients Are Waiting is to assist the students at having success in their journeys and to build that armor against the challenges that they face, because there will always be challenges. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Heart of Giving podcast. We're featuring powerful Black women who are giving back. Tune in for our next episode, where we'll continue the conversation with three additional leaders in our society. Thanks for tuning in. And if you want to support the podcast, please do so by making a donation at give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.